Please grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where we'll be this morning. Why don't I read our text for today, which is verses 19 through 23. I'll read that again and then open with a prayer. Paul writes, For though I am free from all men... I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for all of the amazing truths that are contained therein, that as we approach your word. We're not just approaching a random book off the shelf. We're not just approaching words typed out on paper, but we are having an encounter with you, the living God. We are discovering more about who you've made us to be and how we are to live this life now that we've come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. And Lord, we ask that today as we look into your word that we would not be distracted by the many things of life that demand our attention but that we would be focused solely on you. We'd be focused on who it is that uh, you've called us to be, that as we spend time in the text today, it would affect our tomorrow and the week ahead. Lord, we ask too that though I am a sinner, both by nature and by choice, that I would not get in the way of your text this morning, but that your word would be clear to your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I should also make clear from the beginning, too, that there seems to be a fly that likes to hover up here. So I'm not directing you if I'm doing one of these numbers, okay? Uh, It's just what we're going to be dealing with today, it seems like. So uh, it just comes with the territory. Well, as we continue our study through 1 Corinthians, uh, I hope you've been enjoying this study. I know I have. I've been learning a lot as I've been preparing these messages and teaching from uh, this letter. But as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians, we are seeing some themes come up over and over and over again. And particularly in this section, we are seeing the themes of Christian freedom and Christian love just merge together and come to the forefront. And today, our passage is no exception here in chapter 9, starting at verse 19. We are going to be learning more and more about how we are to use this life that God has given us to serve Him and to serve others. Because as Christians, love is our priority. Now, whether or not we live that way is another story. But the fact is, love is our priority as Christians. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul was writing to that church about uh, the amazing person of Jesus Christ, that though he existed as God, he came in the form of a servant and dwelt among us. But as he gets into that passage, Paul says that this is an attitude that we are to have in Christ, that we are to not look out merely for ourselves out of selfish ambition or conceit, but we are to look for the interest of others. And it says this amazing phrase, count others as more important than yourself. Now that is quite a phrase. It is hard to live that way, isn't it? I mean, this is a constant 24-7, 365 battle that your mindset would be to count others as more important than yourself. Because this isn't a bumper sticker. I mean, it might be somewhere. I mean, maybe you'll come across a gas station in the south somewhere that'll have this on a bumper sticker. I don't know. But this is a lifestyle to count others as more important than yourself. And this is particularly true in the area of evangelism. 
And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know this, where perhaps at your initial conversion, if you got saved later in life, very fired up about evangelism, very fired up about getting the word out and clear your schedule. What else is there to do but pray and preach, right? Let's get the word out. And then over time, it becomes an inconvenience to evangelize. It becomes an inconvenience to go out of your way to make sure the gospel message gets out to your neighbors. It becomes more annoying than it is joyful. It becomes more frustrating than it does liberating and exciting. Well, aren't we thankful for the Word of God? Who, the, the Word always corrects us as we start wandering off in these different directions, our heart leading us astray. Scripture speaks truth back into our lives. And I want us to dwell on verse 19 for quite some time here this morning. Just this opening verse that says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. I want us to think about that theme that's found in that verse. We're going to check out some other passages, and it's going to be a, a wandering away and then coming back to verse 19. But the themes that are here, being free from all, yet being a slave to all, is where I want us to dwell this morning. Paul says he is absolutely free from all. And so are you. As a Christian, you are free, which is a, a great word of encouragement, I hope, for you, that you are free from all men. And this reality should define your approach to your life. As you go about living your life, you're not seeking all kinds of rules and regulations and new ceremonies and new things to follow and new things to obey. You've been set free in Christ. You've been released through the power of the gospel to be free in Christ. You have direct access to God Himself. You hear from God through His Word. You pray to God, and you're free. It's great news because you were a slave, and the world around you is enslaved, but now you are free. And let's define this freedom. Because freedom is the issue at hand through these chapters. Remember at the beginning of chapter 8, Paul was talking about meat offered to idols. And this is actually still on the topic of meat offered to idols. He's coming back to that at the end of chapter 10. So we're in the middle of a, a series of verses and chapters here where Paul is emphasizing Christian freedom. And he's teaching us that we are free from all ceremonial prohibitions that are out there. All kinds of ceremonies, all kinds of prohibitions that may be placed on your life, you're free from them. And there are two main ideas that Paul has. One is, of course, the Old Testament law. As you read through the law and the first covenant, and you read through all the rules and regulations that God had for His people Israel, there are lots of them, aren't there? It's hard to keep them all straight. If you were in Israel and you were seeking to memorize the Torah, there are a lot of rules you had to memorize. And in that life, as God's set-apart nation, it was imperative that you follow the law. There was a blessing associated with following the law, and there were curses associated with disobeying the law. So things like uh, eating certain foods or observing certain days, having certain holidays and conducting yourself appropriately on those certain holidays, some of them requiring a pilgrimage going to certain places and doing certain things. There were ceremonial prohibitions that you had to follow as a Jew. But there aren't just ceremonies and prohibitions found in religion, uh, the religion of Judaism or otherwise. There are also prohibitions and ceremonies found in the world. In the book of Colossians, Paul writes about this. In Colossians 2, he says, Why are you guys submitting yourselves to these elementary principles of the world? This do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Why are you submitting yourselves to that? Let no man be your judge, is what Paul says. So we have all kinds of customs in our culture. It's appropriate for you to behave this way because you're from here. And, oh, you're here now and you need to do this and behave this way and do that. No, you're free from all men. You're not a slave to that. You're not a slave to those ceremonies and customs, but you're free. The book of Galatians, Paul writes to them how they're free from the old covenant law. And in Colossians, they're free from the worldly 
prohibitions that exist. And here it's a catch-all phrase in verse 19, I am free from all men. There's a freedom that comes by being in Christ. Because no man can bind your conscience. No ceremonial law can bind your conscience. You're free. Because only God has the authority, the moral authority, to tell you this is right or this is wrong. Only God does. And you're not to be submitted to another. You're a steward of the truth that God has given you, the grace that God has given you. Not to put yourself under an earthly master, but to serve God alone. And freedom is what Jesus taught as the new reality for the Christian. Turn with me to the book of John. Turn back just a few books to the book of John, the Gospel of John. Chapter 8, starting at verse 31. Jesus taught that the new reality for the one who is in him is freedom. The one who is in Christ is free. Look at what he says in John 8, starting at verse 31. It says, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you know this verse, verse 32, And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Legitimate question. They've never been slaves. They're not currently slaves. And Jesus said you'll be made free? Well, look at what he says. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. They were slaves to sin. They were children of their father, the devil, Jesus would go on to say. Slaves to sin who needed to be set free. And Jesus presented to them his word, that through his word they would be made free. Through the finished work of the cross, the gospel message, they would be free. Their lives, their identity would be defined by freedom. So by Christ's doing, we are free from sin because Christ is our master. And you, Christian, have no other master. You have one master, Jesus, and that makes you free. You're no longer a slave, but you are a free man. You're a free woman. You have no earthly master in this life, but you're a steward of the grace of God and the gifts of God. And so the word to you this morning as we start off thinking on this topic is that you should not go out seeking another master. You shouldn't go out seeking another master, whether that's sin and having over you patterns, behaviors, habits of sin that just rule over you. Sin is not your master. Jesus is your master. Perhaps it's a law. Perhaps you're prone to want to obey a law. Just give me a structure. Give me a list of rules. Give me a yes or no of what I can do or can't do. You're free. Don't seek a master that you would go off and serve a list. Serve Christ. Or perhaps you're prone to wanting some sort of human authority. Give me a guy or a group of guys who are just really smart and they can always just tell me what to do. They're not your master. You're free from all men. You're free from all things. These ways are actually quite sinful when we seek to serve another. Of course, the sin that we might still be serving is, of course, sinful. But many of you find it comfortable. Many of you find the master of sin to be very comfortable in your life. And the idea of leaving those sin habits that have ruled over you is very uncomfortable. You're a slave to something other than Jesus. Be free. Christ can make you free. Be free. 
seeking out a list of customs. Give me a website that just tells me everything I'm supposed to do in life. Or give me a group of guys who wear nice suits and they can just, you know, be my authority. That's a sinful pursuit. Jesus is enough. Jesus is all you need. He's given you His Word. He's given you the Holy Spirit. Be free! Go, be free. And when you approach life from that perspective, isn't it just so much more relaxing? Isn't it so much more joyful that He has given you rest? His yoke is easy, His burden is light, and He's your master? He's not demanding, he's not putting weight on you, commanding you do this, you do that, and you can never get it done. But he's inviting you to be free in him. And don't run to any other source to be your master, but be free. That's the Christian life. That is at the heart of our identity. And earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians, if you turn back there to chapter 7, 1 Corinthians 7 Paul has already started to present this paradigm, the slave and free man paradigm. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 at verse 21, Paul asks the rhetorical question, were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. This is quite the paradox that Paul has presented. Are you in slavery, Christian? And this is, of course, is talking about human slavery where you served in a master at someone's home, like a job. Though it wasn't like our jobs today by really any stretch of the imagination. But Paul says, look, is that your way of life? Is that where God has placed you? And you're a slave serving at the Smith's house? You're a slave serving at whoever's house? Don't seek to become free. You're the Lord's freed man. But if there's an opportunity to be free, rather do that. But know this spiritual reality that supersedes anything else. You're free in Christ. You're free in the Lord. And if you're free, have this reality be at the forefront of your mind. You're Christ's slave. You're a slave of Christ. Turn back to chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the end of that chapter. The title of that sermon that I preached, however long ago that was, was free to build in humble love. We were free to build, we are free to build on the foundation of Christ in humble love. Look at what Paul says starting at verse 21, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 21. He writes, So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. (laughs) Just stop right there. All things belong to you. You don't feel that way, I know it. But this is the spiritual reality. All things belong to you. And he gives examples. Verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. And you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. You see how there's zero room for another master in there? There's zero room for an earthly authority to be your master that you would serve whether it's one of these apostles or someone else, they all belong to you. Whether it's life or death, whether it's things happening now or things that are going to happen, it all belongs to you, and you belong to Christ. You are free because Christ, the maker of all things, is your master. The king of the universe is your only master, and the result of that is that you are the freest person on the planet. You are absolutely free. You are not under the shackles of a law. You are not under the shackles of worldly prohibitions. Don't do this. Don't do that. Observe this. Observe that. No! That's not for you. Christ is for you. And He has set you free. You are free from all men. You are owned by no one. All things belong to you because you belong to Christ. Okay, great, you say. So free for all. 
<laughs> we just walk around like, like little deities then, just doing whatever we want because all things belong to us. Well, this amaze, there's this amazing teaching in Scripture. Multiple authors, multiple books. You find it in Scripture. You were given this amazing freedom, this truly awesome freedom for a purpose. And you know what that purpose is? Slavery. Now, isn't that something? You were given all this freedom. All things belong to you. No one owns you so that you might be a slave. I want to show this to you from Scripture. Galatians 5.13. You don't have to turn there. But Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Our freedom is for serving in love. 1 Peter chapter 2, this is verse 16. 1 Peter 2, verse 16. Act as free men. Great. And do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as slaves to God. Use your freedom to be a slave to God. This freedom has a very specific purpose. I've been talking about how we are not under these laws and prohibitions. We're stewards of grace. How do you know you're being a good steward of grace? How do you know you're being a good steward of what God has given you in the gospel? Are you using your freedom for slavery? That's the question. To serve God and to serve others. Is your heart to serve God with your life, to build up your brother, to wash each other's feet, to honor God, to have a home that glorifies God. Is that your heartbeat? Be a steward of the grace of God by using your freedom for slavery. And Paul reckoned himself a slave to all. Back in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, again, that big statement, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Paul reckoned himself a slave to all. <laughs> he didn't discount the spiritual reality that he's free from all, that he's owned by no one, but he reckoned himself as being a slave. Voluntarily, willingly, out of love, stewarding the grace of God, displaying how freedom should be used. How is freedom to be used? Make yourself a servant. Make yourself a slave. And you see Paul's motivation here in verse 19. So that, every time you see a so that, it's purpose. What's the purpose of being a slave? That I may win more. Winning souls for God through gospel proclamation, through evangelism, making known the finished work of Jesus Christ, that he might win people to Jesus. Proverbs 11.30 of course, Paul knew this verse. He who is wise wins souls. If you're wise, that's one of your priorities is to win souls. And Paul's motivation was to win more. He kept first things first. He kept priorities in their place, didn't he? He didn't see his freedom as an opportunity to self-indulge. He didn't see his freedom as given to him so that he can do whatever he wants to do to make himself happy. He saw his freedom given to him that he might use it to win people to Christ. He saw that as the purpose of his freedom. He desired to see salvation take place more than to exercise his own rights. He wasn't inward focused. He wasn't set on coasting through life. Okay, I've been given freedom. I've been given grace. Cruise control, I'll just do whatever I want the rest of my life and turn a blind eye. That was not Paul's approach. His approach was to see freedom for this great, big, grand, beautiful purpose of winning people to their Creator through the finished work of Christ. And this is the type of personality that missionaries should have. Now, of course, this is the the type of mindset we should all have, of course, is that we do all things to win people to Christ. But we're not going to be perfect in that. This is just a reminder to get your mind back there. Um, we, are, we are to approach life with this idea that freedom was given to us for the purpose of serving, and in particularly in the area of evangelism, winning people to Christ. 
And when it comes to missionaries, those who say, I want to vocationally go to this place to seek to win people to Christ, you want them to have this type of mindset, that they have freedom to serve people to win them to the Lord, that they would be serious about it, that they would know that they have the message that saves, that they have God's good news, and that they want to get it out, that that's their motivation. That's the standard we try to have for our missionaries in this church. We don't want lazy missionaries. Lazy missionaries, ones who don't have a heart that is fully driven by desiring to get the gospel out to those who have never heard, I don't want to support those missionaries. I'll pray for them but I'm going to talk to them too if they're going to ask for money and say, what are you doing? Because you see Paul's heart here as a model missionary for us, that though he's free from all men, he's made himself a slave to all. You couldn't stop Paul, unless you're God himself, from getting to where he wanted to go to get the gospel out. And you see that in the book of Acts, don't you? The only time he turned away was when the Spirit prevented him from going. He desired to get out there. Pete Rose, baseball player who should be in the Hall of Fame, once said, he once said that he would walk through hell in a gas, gasoline suit to play baseball. Now, theology aside from that quote and breaking that down from a philosophical perspective, that's the type of heart that Paul had for the gospel, isn't it? To just get it out there to go because he wanted to win people to Christ. Regardless of what it took, he was going to do it. What a great example of how the gospel just changes a life and how the Holy Spirit particularly gifts some of us as missionaries to be able to do such a thing. Our freedom must push us to serve, must push us towards servanthood, toward both God and man. And this freedom that's used as slavery isn't just seen in evangelism, it's also seen in fellowship as we submit to one another. Do you know that's one of the one another's in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, 21? Submit to one another. Here we are in the church, we come together with all of our different preferences, all of our different tastes, all of our different preconceived notions. Use your freedom to submit to one another in servanthood. And if everyone had that mindset, wow, that'd be amazing. But I fail at it. You fail at it. We're all going to fail at it. We just need to be renewed in our thinking by the Word of God. This is what our freedom is for, submitting to one another. And Paul goes on to list out specific groups with whom he's used his freedom as a basis for service. If you run your eyes over verses 20 through 22, you get three groups that come out. The Jews who are under the law, those who are without the law, and then the third category of the weak. Now, before we get into breaking those down, I want us to think about this phrase that you find in each of the verses. Verse 20, you see it, to the Jews I became as a Jew. You see that phrasing there? What does it mean that Paul became as? Well, let me just clarify. It does not mean that he changed his beliefs. When I was around Jews, I converted to Judaism for a bit, and then when I left them, I converted back out of it. That's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying his doctrinal statement changed. He's not saying the gospel changed. He's not saying any of that. What he's saying when he talks about becoming as is he's saying he adapted to a culture. When I was among this culture of people, I adapted to that culture with my behavior. He changed his habits or his pattern or his practices so that it didn't cause any type of stumbling block with those people. He adapted his behavior. And this concept, of course, only exists, this concept of adapting only exists because freedom exists. If we didn't have freedom in the gospel, we wouldn't be able to adapt to anything. We would be strictly stuck to a code. We'd be strictly stuck to customs. But Christ won for us freedoms, and therefore we are free to adapt. And again, Paul had no focus on self-interest in this freedom. As he presents it to us here in verses 20 to 23, Paul is presenting to us an adaptation of behavior for the betterment of others. He didn't become as a Jew because he wanted to do that for himself. He didn't become as, though, as one without the law because he wanted to do that for himself. He didn't become weak because it benefited him to become weak. He did all these things that the recipients 
of his behavior would be benefited, that he would gain a hearing with them, that they would hear the gospel, that they would convert to Jesus Christ, that their lives would be changed. He adapted his behavior for their betterment, not for his own. And Paul had encountered many people on his missionary journeys. Undoubtedly, he adapted many times over. This is just a small sampling of the ways that he did that. And let's look at these categories one by one. The first being the Jews under the law, his fellow countrymen. It says again in verse 20, To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, again, that's the same group of people, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. Appropriately, Paul listed the Jews first. Romans 1, 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Paul's pattern in his ministry, as you read through the book of Acts, he would go to a town and where would be the first place he would go? The synagogue. He'd go see the Jews. And he would adapt himself to that environment before going out to the Gentiles. This is Paul's heart was for his fellow countrymen, for them to be saved. And he says here, again in verse 20, that among them, among the Jews, he became as a Jew. Now think about that for a moment. This is the Hebrew of Hebrews writing to us. Remember Philippians 3? A Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin. He had this huge pedigree in Judaism, his whole life was defined by being an Israelite. And here he is saying, he became a Jew, as a Jew. He no longer saw his identity wrapped up in that ethnicity of being Jewish. He no longer found his identity, what defined who he was, as this marker of being an Israelite. Paul was a Christian. He was defined by Christ. And he would go back among the Jews, so many of them I'm sure he had known before, he had relationships with, others who had just heard about him because he was one of the bigger names in Judaism at that time. And when he went back among them, it wasn't that he was one of them, it was now he was becoming as one of them for that time. He was adapting because he was no longer a Jew in his mind. He was a Christian. And there's a great example of this in the book of Acts. Turn with me back just a couple of books to Acts 21. Paul did some pretty amazing things on his missionary journeys. And this was one of the most amazing, I think. It's really confounding. Acts chapter 21. Paul is in Jerusalem. He's with James, the half-brother of Jesus. And he's recounting to James and others what God has done among the Gentiles. He's telling them how God has been saving people who aren't Jewish. And they're astonished to hear this report. We're going to pick up in verse 20. Acts 21, verse 20. It says, when they heard it, this is Paul's report, when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are of, among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. So let's stop right there. Paul was just telling them about what God has done among the Gentiles. And now James and the others are saying what God is doing among the Jews in Jerusalem. And you have this very strange scenario. Because he says, look down at verse uh, 20 again, where it starts the quote. He says, there are thousands of the Jews who have believed. Well, believed what? They've believed in the gospel message. They've believed Jesus. They've begun at least some sort of Christian walk. And he follows it up with, they're also zealous for the law. This is very interesting. And the book of Acts is a transitionary book. You go through the book of Acts and you see some strange stuff because what you have is first covenant fading into new covenant. And you have a bunch of people who are trying to figure it all out. And it's very confusing. We know that the Jews and Gentiles had a hard time getting along. And the Gentiles were told, well, look, stay away from these four things from the law if you can stay away from those four things, the Jews will be relatively happy and we can all just kind of live in peace. And those Jews were Christians too, but they were wanting to put the law on the Gentiles. So the Jews at that time who were starting to believe were just having a hard time knowing what to do with the law. And they, it says here, were zealous 
for the law. Really fired up about these issues. Okay, so let's keep reading. Verse 21. It says that these Jews have been told about you, Paul, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. (laughs) Verse 25. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice to the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Paul went, purified himself according to Jewish custom, observed a rite where their heads would be shaved, and there were sacrifices made in the temple. Wow. He really became a Jew, didn't he? (laughs) Here he was, set free from all these things in the gospel, all these ceremonial prohibitions. He's been set free from them in the gospel. And yet here he is doing those things. How do we explain this? Well, Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians 9, that he might win more. Now, of course, some of those Jews were saved and just confused on how, what to do with the law. And it would just take time for the law to fade away. Now, there were probably others among those Jews who weren't saved yet, who were maybe interested in hearing more, but were so caught up in the law. Well, Paul's, Paul's passion here was to become as they were, to try to win them, to gain a hearing with them, to walk alongside them, and to insert Jesus into those conversations to get the gospel into those conversations, to get gospel teaching into those conversations, all the application that comes with the freedom that Christ has won for us. Isn't that remarkable? Paul saw that ritual that for him used to be very important to having a right relationship with God. He now saw that ritual as merely a tool for reaching those people who were practicing it. He didn't see it as, I'm going to join with them and then I'll be on better terms with God. He saw it as a tool for reaching those people. And you have, of course, earlier on in the book of Acts, where Paul and Timothy were going to evangelize and they were headed into a heavily Jewish community and they would know that, Paul, uh, that uh, Timothy's dad was a Greek and that Timothy wasn't circumcised. And so Paul had Timothy circumcised before they went into that community. Now that is really seeking to prioritize your freedom for slavery, isn't it? Did Timothy have to do that? Nope. Did Paul have to urge that in Timothy? No. But because Paul's heartbeat was to win people, he was willing to go that far. Timothy was willing to go that far. And over and over again, we see this in the book of Acts, that they laid down their personal rights and self-interest for the sake of winning people. That's extreme love, isn't it? There's a second group that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 9. Not just those who are under the law, but verse 21, those who are without the law. Paul came, became as one without the law. These are the Gentiles and the pagans, like the Corinthians by and large, the ones he's writing to. They are uh, mostly people who came from a lawless background. But notice how quickly Paul jumps as he says this in verse 21. He very quickly says, though I am not without the law of God, I'm under the law of Christ. Very quick clarification. Paul's not saying he's an antinomian. That's a a phrase, that's a term that's used to talk about people who are totally against any kind of moral law. Paul's saying, look, I'm not without the law of God. I have the morality of God with me always. I'm not saying that I went out and started lying and stealing and killing and all those things. But he says, I still became as one without the law. What this means is that Paul went as far as truth would let grace go. When he was among people who were just lawless people, as far as truth lets grace adapt, 
You've got truth and grace in the Christian life, right? And our grace is to be seen, but never at the expense of truth. And our truth is always to be revealed within grace, isn't it? Both and. And so when you go to be among a lawless people and look like them and talk like them and act like them and learn their phrases and listen to their music and do all those things, you want to go as far as truth will let grace go. If it ever comes to the point where you're crossing a line and you're objectively sinning, it's time to stop. You can't cross that line. Paul says, look, I'm not without God's morality. But he still did what he could to become as one without the law. He wasn't under the law, but he wasn't without the law. He wasn't under the law, but he also wasn't without the law. He was seeking to do all things from love. And that, of course, is the law of Christ. Thomas Schreiner has written this. I didn't get it up on the, on the screen for today, but Thomas Schreiner said, Believers live under Christ's law when they live for the good of others, especially when they are concerned about bringing others to salvation for the purpose of Jesus' self-giving love on the cross was to reconcile people to God. What does it mean to be under the law of Christ? It means to give yourself up in the name of love to win people, to reconcile them to God, because that's what Christ did in the gospel. So think about this. As Paul was among those who were without the law, he spent a lot of time in Corinthians, so that might have been, or in Corinth, so that may have been one of his examples that he had in mind. He didn't practice the Sabbath when he was with those without the law. Didn't need to. He's not under the law. He's not under the prohibition of observing the Sabbath. He didn't observe the dietary laws. As he was with those without the law, someone said, hey, have you ever had lobster? Or is it crab? Or is it both? I don't know. Shellfish? Have you ever had shellfish? <laughs> Paul's like, hey, yeah. Have you dipped it in butter? It's good. Yeah. And they started eating it. He didn't observe the Sabbath or the dietary laws. He saw those things merely as tools now. So when he was around the Jews, of course he would observe those things as a tool to gain a hearing. And with those without the law, he did not prioritize that. He was among them and lived like them. He didn't even bring up those things. He just had gospel love for them. And the third group, verse 22, the weak. So there are the Jews, there are those without the law, and then thirdly, the weak. Now this one is a bit hard to define because earlier in the letter, Paul was talking about the weak as being Christians who just have a weak conscience. That's not what Paul has in mind here because you see that his language is winning. He's seeking to win the weak, to save some. We're talking about people who aren't saved. So these aren't Christians with weak consciences. These are a different category. And there are basically two options, but I think they go together. The first would be the sick or the poor or the downcast in society. Those who are weak in strength, those who are without resources, the weak. But it could also mean those who are without knowledge, those who are weak-minded, those who aren't learned, those who aren't educated. And usually in societies, you find a blending of those two things together in many people. And so I think we could have both in mind as we consider this. In Paul's journeys, there were obviously many occasions for both of these, when he would be among those who were without resources, who were without strength, when he would be among those who were without knowledge. And as Paul saw them, he would join them. Think of the homeless shelters that exist in our day. You think Paul would end up on his missionary journeys in homeless shelters? I think so. I think he would. Some soup kitchen somewhere, you think Paul would be found there sharing the gospel? That he would go and associate with the weak among us? I think he would. As he was teaching those who weren't very educated, do you think Paul did a good job of putting the cookies on the bottom shelf, so to speak, <laughs> taking the concepts that are, are really are deep. I mean, you've read Ephesians and Romans, right? Deep, deep concepts. Do you think he really strained to do all that he could that they would hear the truth in a way they could understand? I think so. That was Paul's heart. And that's quite an example for us. So as we think, as Paul adapted to the Jews to those who are without the law and to the weak, this is a great example for us because we encounter so many different people, don't we? Especially now in Utah, you have so many people moving here from so many different walks of life. There are so many people you're going to run into out there. 
and what you should seek to do, and I've purposely saved this word. I haven't used it until now. What you should seek to do is contextualize. This is a word called contextualization. And all that means is to take the message of truth and adapt it for that particular situation. You don't change the content. You just change the package. That's called contextualization. And it's a very important and necessary part of the Christian life. Because if I was just one way about me, where I dressed the same every day, I spoke the same to everybody I talked to, I used the same level of vocabulary, uh, yada, 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 and no matter who I'm talking to, that's just how I'm going to be. I'm going to be very ineffective, aren't I? When churches in America go to plant a church in Africa or East Asia or something like that, and there's no contextualization that takes place, they're not concerned about dressing like the people or singing the style of songs that the people sing or any of that. They're a lot less effective. Now, I'm not saying they have to do anything. They could do whatever they want. But in the freedom that we have in Christ, can't you see how there's a great opportunity to serve people by adapting to the situation that you're in? And as you're speaking to a child, you're, you should be adapting than if you're speaking to someone who's like a college professor. Even on those little levels, you're contextualizing. You're taking the gospel message, whatever truth you're discussing, and you're packaging it in a way that it gains a better hearing. Now, sadly, this has been the cause of much debate and division within the church. How far do you go in contextualizing? Well, there is a, a too far area. Just like in everything, there are, there are ditches to this. You can go too far in contextualizing, but you can also not go far enough where wisdom and love would urge you to go farther, to use your freedom to gain a hearing. So we must prioritize love and wisdom always as we adapt. The gospel never changes, truth never changes, but the package should change. The way we present things should change. So we must be willing to be flexible in this area. And here's what's even harder, to give others flexibility in this area. Because you have a way that you adapt to certain situations, and the way you do it is perfect. You're perfect. And other people go too far or they don't go far enough, those just really dumb people. No, there's a lot of freedom here. There's no one right way to do it. And so we have to be able to give each other that freedom. Now again, you can cross a line where you're objectively sinning. You're objectively being foolish. There is a line that can be crossed. And we want to be on guard for that and help each other with that. But we also need to give each other the freedom. Because God's given us freedom. Don't take it away from your brother or your sister. Let that person use that freedom to win people to Christ. Well, this is all about the gospel. May we never forget this is all about the gospel. And that's what Paul sums this up with in verse 23. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. There's a shift in the verb tense here. In the Greek, there's a perfect tense. And that's what is found here in um, uh, verse... Actually, I, I messed up. It's back in verse 19. I have made myself a slave to all. I have made myself. You can see the same idea, of course, in verse 23, these bookends of this paragraph that he does all things for the sake of the gospel. He's become a slave to all people for the sake of the gospel. And in that perfect tense, when Paul says in verse 19 that he's made himself a slave to all, he's saying that that's his new lifestyle. The perfect tense is a past action that has a continuing effect. So when Paul says, I've become a slave for all, all people, he's not saying I did that once and it was a really good time and now I'm back to not being a slave to all people. Paul's saying, I have decided that my life now is going to be serving others. And verse 23 tells us it's because of the gospel. It's all for the gospel. And Paul writes that he might become a fellow partaker of the gospel. His desire was to live for Jesus through the gospel, that he might reap the rewards of the gospel, the promises associated with the gospel. He didn't have a selfish view of these things. It was a biblical view that he would reap what was sown. 
And I want us to close with Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11, to again, in a different place, see Paul's perspective on this. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Listen to the heart of this missionary. An attitude that we should have as he imitates Christ. Let us imitate him. Paul writes, Philippians 3, verse 7, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. His goal was to live for the gospel and become a partaker in the reward of the gospel, the promise of the gospel, the fruit of the gospel, to gain Christ, to gain the resurrection from the dead, to live a life that is based on Jesus. This view toward the promised reward of the gospel, which comes only through perseverance, is what Paul is going to elaborate on at the end of this chapter. Next week, we're going to finish off chapter 9. As Paul says, it's his desire to persevere, to box not as one who beats the air, but to be diligent in all things and to run in such a way that he may win the prize. It wasn't just a flippant approach to life. It was a serious gospel approach to life because he saw the reality of the gospel. Lord, we thank you so much that you've saved us. In this message through which we've been saved, just put it on our hearts as we look at the world around us that we wouldn't see them as just objects of mass that take up space or interesting people for whom we have no care but give us a heart for them, a missionary heart for them, that we would want to win them to Christ, that we would want to see them reconciled to you. And give us ideas as to how we can adapt, how we can become all things to all people. By your Spirit, inspire us to do all that we can to clear a path to the cross for those who have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus. And in our fellowship, cause us to see this too, that we wouldn't prioritize our own interests, but that we would consider others as more important than ourselves, that we would submit to one another in love and all for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.